of 1 Peter, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, and I'm going to read 1 through 10, we're really only looking at 4 through 10, but I'm going to read beginning in verse 1, if, does anybody know on those handout Bibles what page we're at? 657, 657. awesome, so if you want to look at that, it would be great, or on your phone, or up on the screen, Bibles everywhere. So, um, let's give attention for this is God's word from 1 Peter. <laughs> So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for, those, for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's give our attention to it. Um, Have you ever felt like that you're in a setting or a situation where you just don't belong? Like you're a fish out of water, or you're kind of amidst people who don't look like you, or who don't uh, dress like you, or whatever it may be, that you don't belong. As I was thinking about this, two things came to mind. One was uh, when I was in seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. Seminary is just a place where you go to study scripture. Um, I was there for about four years. And uh, part of one of my classes, a preaching class, is they made us go to different kinds of churches in town to get a feel for the different services and different kind of denominations and stuff and kind of see some of the different things that were happening. And one night, it was a Sunday evening, I uh, went to a church called um, the Charlotte Church of God. Central, Charlotte Central Church of God. And it was, uh, it's a Pentecostal church, and some of y'all may be familiar with Pentecostal churches. Some of you may be from Pentecostal churches. Um, This is not going to be a a talk on Pentecostal churches. But um, going there, I kind of knew a little bit of what I was getting into and what what was going to be happening there. And so some of it was expected. And so, you know, when the music started, uh, people who are traditionally from that background tradition uh, dance and sing and raise their hands and kind of do all, which is beautiful in many ways. Um, and they were kind of doing that all around me. And uh, I, maybe we started tapping my foot or something like that to start feeling the flow a little bit. Um, I felt a little out of place. And then uh, later on in the service, um, they were doing a healing service down front or something. And so people were just flooding down the aisles. And I, I mean, like lots of people were going down the aisles. And I'm kind of standing there thinking, I don't think I need to go, but, um, so I spent a little out of place. Another thing I think about is, um, Ricky Jones, who's the pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church. He went to college at Vanderbilt University and Ricky says that he got into Vanderbilt on the Redneck Scholarship 
And I actually worked at Vanderbilt for two years. And having seen the university and now knowing Ricky, I can attest that's true. Um, Vanderbilt is a very kind of high echelon, kind of upper crust of society. And to think of Ricky being there is really funny because he's very kind of hick and all this stuff. Um, I imagine he would have, there have been times in certain settings where he would have felt very uncomfortable, very much like he didn't belong. Well, the people who get this letter from Peter had begun following Jesus. They um, had begun to worship God. And uh, it was a little bit weird for them because the God that they were worshiping was the God of the Old Testament. Okay? Jesus was saying, when Jesus came, He said, I am God, I'm the God of the Israelites, that is me. And so therefore, anyone who worships me is by that now worshiping the God of the Old Testament. But the people who are getting this letter that Peter's written, they were largely Greeks and Gentiles. They were not ethnic, ethnically Jewish people or even religiously Jewish people. And so for them to be worshiping this kind of historically Jewish God, they would have felt a little bit on the outside, like they weren't belonging at this party. And they would have because nationally, as I mentioned, they weren't of the right pedigree. They kind of didn't come through the traditional Jewish lines. Okay, so nationally they were a little bit on the outside. Spiritually, their parents had gone to the wrong church. Their parents were part of the occult. They were pagans. They worshipped statues. Um, they weren't kind of these good little Jewish boys and girls who went to temple and worshipped God and all this stuff. They were a little bit on the outside from that. And then physically and locationally, they were on the outside. Because the Jewish religion was founded and was started in Jerusalem, right? And these people were kind of up north and west of that, kind of up near what's modern-day Turkey and even into a little bit of Asia Minor. And so they would have been on the outside. They would have been thinking, do we belong? And particularly when they started suffering for their faith, which they did. The people around them were, suffering, were persecuting them greatly. They were being killed by their own government. They would have been thinking, I, you know, I knew it was too good to be true. I knew that this, that this ride had to end somewhere, that that God is not really our God. And here we are being persecuted for this, further showing that we were never really part of it in the first place. And I would actually suggest that for some of us in here who have uh, been following God, and for those who may not, and you've observed this, you might have been thinking yourselves when things have gotten hard, you know what, I knew God didn't really love me. I knew that... I knew this was too good to be true. I knew my sins weren't really forgiving. and Because here I am suffering. It must just be karma. That I did something bad and now it's coming back on me. I knew that whole grace thing that I was forgiven. I knew that was too good to be true. And Peter tonight comes and says, you know what? It wasn't too good to be true. That God loves nobody. He, God loves the outsiders. He loves the nobodies of this world. So for them, that would have been their lives. They were on the outside of this religion. They were the nobodies to this faith. And Peter is saying God loves nobodies. But even more than that, He loves to take nobodies and make them into somebody. And so we're going to talk about that tonight. That's what I want us to get. One simple message that God loves nobodies and takes them and makes them into somebody. So why do I say that God loves nobodies? Well, if you look down at the very beginning at verse 4 there, 
Peter is saying that Jesus himself, in a, in a sense, was a nobody. He was an outsider. He was rejected. Verse 4 says that he was rejected by men. Verse 7 is referring to Jesus. It's a quote from the Old Testament. And it's saying that Jesus was a stone that the builders rejected. And what is so interesting about this, and what Peter goes to kind of, what he's pointing out, is that the world's, and now that as we see it, the world's largest, fastest growing, most far-reaching religion was founded on a reject. It is based on someone who in his own day was not respected. Some people loved him, but by and large people did not love him. Many people rejected him. The very the Jewish people who he came out of, he, Jesus was a Jew. His own people rejected him. He was a reject. He was cast out. He was an outsider, even in his own family of sorts. They hated him. And eventually they killed him. And it's so interesting to think that, the, that Christianity is founded on a reject. Um, my, and it's so, it's so backwards the way we think today. I have a good friend who's, um, who, who works at Penn State, um, out in State College, Pennsylvania. He's the RUF minister out there. And whether or not you know, I'll fill you in real quick. There has just been a lot of junk going on at Penn State over the last couple months. There was this, um, was and still is, this large kind of child abuse, sex abuse scandal through the football program, which led to Joe Paterno, who was this storied and famous historic coach out there. He gets fired. And then... I guess two weeks ago now or so, Coach Paterno dies. And last week was his funeral and the funeral procession. And my friend wrote a note as he observed that. He was out there in part of all the festivities. And he said this, and I'm going to read it. Um, it's, It's not too long, but it's really interesting. He says, I am pleased that our community is mourning and going to honor Paterno's death by celebrating his life. I tried to get tickets to his memorial this morning, and it sold out so quickly that by 10.01, Ticketmaster told me, sorry, there are no tickets left for the event. It opened at 10. Right? They sold out the basketball arena. In one minute, it sold out. It is hard to exaggerate the, the impact of Paterno's death to State College and the Penn State communities. People are coming from all over to honor him, and they should. He said that there were, the, the procession thing was about two miles long. He said you couldn't even stand on the streets. There were so many people. Absolute crowds, mayhem going on. He said, we do this with important people who impact us. Paterno was a bit like a Messiah figure to this place. And I say that as a compliment. But it just intrigues me how different Paterno or anyone meaningful who ever lived is from the true Messiah. Think about how famous Jesus is. Regardless of whether or not you're a follower of his, when Jesus died, no one celebrated his death. No one was there to throw flowers at the cross. Everyone abandoned him. Everyone scattered. There is meaning in mourning in all death. Yet the one whose death we still celebrate each week with bread and wine, no one was there to honor him or celebrate his life. Jesus was an outcast. He was a reject by his own society. And Christianity is now the world's most far-reaching, dominant religious... But you can't miss this. That God loves, chooses, and uses nobodies and rejects. 
Okay, and he shows us that through Jesus, but he also shows us that by the people who are receiving this letter. In verse 10, it says, look, once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you had received mercy. And what he's saying is, once you, once you were outside of this religion, right? It was just for the Jews, but now you've been brought in. And we'll talk about this in just a second. That, that Peter is looking at him saying, look, now this thing is spreading out to all sorts of nobodies. It's spreading out to all sorts of people who have been on the outsides historically. The people who got this, they were the rejects. They were unclean by Jewish standards. They would have been taking great presence. They would have been taking great comfort in this fact that God had now drawn near to them. We're going to talk about how he does that in a second. But I want us to get a few things before we move on. We have to understand that God loves nobodies. And what this means is that God's way of loving people is so much different from our way of loving people, from our society's way of loving and valuing people. Because what we do and what our society does is we love people based on what they can give us or how they can make us feel or how productive they can be or whatever it is. But that is not the story of the gospel. That is not what Christianity does. God starts it and continues it not based on what you can do, not based on your pedigree or your resume or whatever. In fact, God builds His own people, begins with the nation of Israel. And when He, certainly they were wondering because they were not like a great and mighty people. And He looked at them in Deuteronomy 7 and says, Look, it's not because you're powerful that I love you. It's not because you're so great that I love you. He says, I love you because I love you. And so for those of us in here who have ever wondered who, who would consider yourself a Christian and consider yourself to be loved by God, and you've ever wondered, God, why do you love me? Why have you opened my heart to see my own need for Jesus and my own desire for your love? Friends, it's simply because He loves you. It is not based on anything in you. He loves you because He loves you. You also need to see that God sees value and dignity where no one else does. That God looks at people who are not important and He sees value. That He looks at people, you maybe, who don't consider yourself to have a lot to offer society and He looks at you and sees dignity and worth and inherent and intrinsic beauty. And that makes you special. That makes you important. And that makes you eligible to be loved by God. You don't have to be a somebody. God does not accept us because of how good we are, but in spite of how good we aren't. Okay? These, Jew, these Gentile people who are getting this letter, they were not good. Right? They were not people who had this rich, storied Sunday school tradition. Their parents bowed down to stones. Right? Like, that's where they would have showed up on a Sunday morning. It was like at the, at the local temple court. And they'd sit there and bow down to, as Paul would later say in Acts 17, to statues that said an unknown God. It literally would say, it says unknown God across it. And people would sit there and worship it. Right? These are not together people. These aren't good people. And let me see where this gets real personal for us. As some of us have felt like we're on the outsides at times in our lives. Why is it that God's presence and love becomes very real for us whenever we are going through suffering. Whenever we don't feel like we're a part of a group, it's almost instinctive to cry out for God. Where are you, God? Come and help me. Come visit me. 
What if then the sufferings that we experience in our life in the difficult times, and some of y'all have been through very difficult circumstances, things that are really sad, suffering, these people have gone through it too, and I just want to say, what if those difficult times and the sufferings weren't simply God's way of saying, look, you were never meant to live this life away from me. It is not God's punishment. He does not work on karma. God is gracious and He gives us situations and circumstances to bring us to Himself. To take the nobodies and bring them and make them into a somebody. And so it's when we accept that God loves nobodies, the nobodies that we are, that we can see how He takes nobodies and makes them into somebodies. And Peter does this, the second point tonight, Peter does this through painting a picture for his readers. And the picture he paints for them is going to be kind of unfamiliar to us, but it would make a little more sense to them. You can go ahead and go to the next slide, Phil. What he does is he says his way of saying, look, God loves nobodies and makes them somebodies, is he starts referring to them in very Old Testament language. And he first looks at them and says, look, you are special. You are loved by God. He has made you into a temple. You are now my temple. Verse 5 says, You yourselves, like living stones, which is a word he just used to describe Jesus, you yourselves are being built up into a spiritual house. Okay, this is a big deal. Because remember, these are not Jewish people. And what Peter is telling them is that the temple, the old temple in Jerusalem, he's saying, God is done with that. That you yourselves are now God's temple. That God is now in your midst as He used to be in the midst of the temple. You see, people in the Old Testament, they would come to the temple to be near to God. God promised them and said, I'm, my spirit is going to be right here on this mercy seat. The Ark of the Covenant, this is where I'm going to be. And if you want to know me, if you want to worship me, people had to come to Jerusalem. And what Peter is saying is you don't have to do that anymore. That you are now God's temple because His Spirit dwells in the midst of you. Okay? And so if you're a Christian and you're someone who believes this, then this is why um, Matthew or Jesus would say in Matthew 18 that where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. That there's no longer a place where we have to go that God is in our midst. Okay, a couple other things we need to see about the temple is that the temple is where God dwelled and promised to be found. I said that, but the temple was at the center of everything in the lives of these Jewish, these Jewish people. That God, everything was situated around the temple. And that is exactly what God wants from us. He wants to be at the center of our lives. Okay? That God wants to be at the center of our lives and He promises to go out from there. So everything for them, their worship, their identity is based on this temple. That was the Jewish people. And God is now looking at these non-Jewish people, these Gentile, these Greek people like you and me and saying, Look, if you believe in Jesus, that you are now God's temple. His Spirit dwells in you and is in your midst. Verse 4 says, if As you come to Him, the Lord Jesus, God now dwells in the midst of you. Okay, a couple points of application before we move on. If you're here tonight and you're, not, and you're not a Christian, I want you to consider this. That if you want to know what God is like, you cannot go out into the world 
or out into the forest and hope to meet God there in a way that He has not promised to be there. He is there because He created the world. But He says, if you want to know what I'm like, go to my church. Go be in the midst of my people where I've promised that I'm going to be. Where I'm promised that I'm going to be on Sunday. On, when we celebrate the resurrection each week, God has promised. He said, I'm going to be there like I'm nowhere else. So if you want, if you're exploring God, if you're exploring Christianity, I, I encourage you to go to church more than coming to RUF because God has not promised to be at a Tuesday night campus ministry. And certainly we are His church in some sense, as there are some believers here. But when we get together formally on Sundays, I know that sounds very outdated and I sound like I'm 50 years old and your parents standing up here, but their church is a big deal. And so if you're a Christian, I want you to hear this. Church is a big deal. That, that there is no category in the Bible for you to be a Christian and for you not to be part of a church. The old saying from Augustine, St. Augustine in the 2nd, 3rd century, actually 4th century, he says, you cannot have God as your father without having the church as your mother. That they are so inexplicably intertwined in Scripture that the church is a big deal. And so when you get up on Sunday morning, you see that it's, 10 o'clock, and you say, oh, I'm going to sleep for another hour, and I'm just going to get up and read a couple psalms or maybe put in my iPod and listen to a sermon. God has not promised to meet you there. Now, I'm not saying you will never gain anything from that. But, y'all, there is something about being in the midst of God's people. He said, I am going to be there. I'm going to be there when you worship me, when the sacraments are there, when people are being baptized, when the Lord's Supper is served, that God is there in a way that He is nowhere else. Okay, so Peter says, look, you are a temple. You are, you are God's new temple. But he secondly goes on to say that, look, God takes nobodies and makes them somebodies by making you into a royal priesthood. Okay, go ahead, Phil, and go to the next one. Now, here's what happens. And this is amazing. Because if, if the thing about the temple would have been amazing for them, being like, oh my gosh, we're now the temple. When Peter says you're now a priesthood, this would have been mind-blowing for them. And here's why. Because the priests, they were the people... Philip, go back uh, a slide for just a second. The priests, there's a little man here, you can't see the little stick man. But the priest stood between the people and God. The priest was the go-between, the mediator, right? And so physically, he was in closest proximity to God, and that wasn't by mistake. Because here's why. <coughs> The priest would offer sacrifices on behalf of men. And so what would happen is people would come up, and there's all sorts of reasons that people in the Old Testament would offer sacrifices, but they'd bring their goats and their bulls and their lambs up to this altar. The priest would slit their neck, and they would burn them right here. And then the priest symbolically represented God to the people and the people to God. He was a mediator, a go-between. And look, this is why if you've ever tried to do... A read the Bible in a year and you get to Leviticus and there's like all these ridiculous laws. You're like, oh my gosh, I don't even know what's going on. There's blood everywhere and there's like people getting slung with blood and it's just crazy. But here's why. Is that God said, if you're going to be a priest and you're going to come into my presence, you have to be pure. You have to be holy. And so a lot, all of those laws are talking about how the priest, or some of those laws are talking about how the priest would purify himself. And he'd do all these cleansings and all these things. 
Because he, in a sense, as he would purify himself, was showing something of God to the people. That God himself is pure and without sin and without blemish. That God himself is holy. And so as the priest would wear these white linen robes, they would show God to be white and pure and holy. But not only would he, they rep, he represent God to the people, he would represent the people to God because the priest was a man. He was a man just like us. Okay? And so here's what's going on. Here's what else happens. Is that the sacrifices then came from man to God, but the pardon would come from God to man through the priest. Now, I don't know if you know this, but um, in the Jewish religion, there's a day called Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur. And what happened is one day a year, one day a year the great high priest... Would, would come and they would, he would take a, a one-year-old, um, sp- I keep trying to say blameless, a spotless lamb, a perfect lamb. And he would go into the very presence. See, there was a curtain here that divided. It was saying, look, God is holy. There's this division. There's this division. And there's even yet another one before you get to him. All to say that God is holy. Not just anyone can come back there. But what would happen is the high priest would go back there once a year and he would take blood back there and, in a sense, appease God's wrath for the people. And here's what was amazing. When the priest came out, he would take the blood and he'd put it on this sponge hyssop thing and he'd throw it out on the people, symbolizing to them that this blood purifies you, that this blood cleanses you, Okay, keep that in mind as we listen to Hebrews 9, 11, and 12. It says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, He entered once and for all into the holy place. Think back here. Jesus entered once and for all into the holy place, not by the means of bloods of goats and calves, but by the means of His own blood. Think about this. When Jesus Christ went up on the cross and was bleeding up there, and at RUF, when we sing all of these songs about the blood of Jesus, the first one we sing, nothing but the blood. We're always singing about the blood of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is our great high priest who has gone into God's presence once and for all to pay for our sin. And that blood is then slung out on people and said, the forgiveness is for you. That you can be forgiven because Jesus is the great high priest and has gone into the Holy of Holies to forgive you. Jesus says, this is why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one, no one comes to God except through me. Okay, Peter, uh, Peter, Philip, go to that next slide and this will make sense. Here's the cross. The blood now is thrown out on people. We can be forgiven of our sin. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one gets to God except through me. Now, in 21st century Tulsa, Oklahoma, 2011, we read the verse, John 14, 2, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to Father through me. And that sounds really offensive to us. It sounds like Jesus being really exclusive in all these things. And people in our day get really mad about that. Oh, how can Jesus be the only way? Okay, let's kind of understand that we may get a little offended But for them, for the Jewish people, when Jesus walked around saying, by the way, if you want to get to God, you got to come through me, they wanted to kill him. 
Because what he's saying to them is your whole temple system, your sacrificial system is done. Your whole way of doing religion is done because guess what? I am God and I have come. The old things are passing away. There's something new that has come and and his name is me. Jesus has come. And so what happened? People, the people, the temple people who had these cush jobs, the high priests, they wanted to kill Jesus. So what did they do? They killed him. They put him on a false trial and they killed him because he was putting them out of business. Jesus was offensive in his day. But look, Jesus is the great high priest. And what that means for us is it means so many things. We're going to try and catch this. Is that it means that we have direct access to the God of the universe through Jesus Christ. That, friends, there is no longer any mediator needed. You don't have to go through a priest or a father or a pastor to pray to God and have, and have your prayers heard. You can be in His presence by saying, Dear God, I pray this, this, this. In Jesus' name I pray. Because Jesus is your high priest. He has already gone. He is in God's presence now. And this is what Peter says in verse 5. He says, through the name of Jesus, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It also means that any of us can confess our sins to God without going to anyone else. Because there is nobody between us and God except for Jesus Christ. And so if Jesus' blood is on you and you have been forgiven your sin, we can freely now confess to God. You can go home tonight. You can right now say, God, forgive me. There's no more mediator. Jesus is that mediator. It also means that Jesus is a sacrifice that that cleanses and purifies us before God. That Jesus not only was the great high priest, but He Himself was the sacrifice. And so this means that your sins can really, actually, truly be forgiven. Your sins in the past, the ones that you did in high school that you're so embarrassed about and you haven't told anybody about, except that one friend from high school and you don't want to talk to him anymore about it, and you just want to disappear. Those sins, the ones you're doing right now that you did today that are going on in your mind right now, and the ones you will commit forever, that you can be purified by what Jesus has done for you. He cleanses you. And this is, a, this is an amazing thought. And it, I've only begun to, begun to understand this in the last few years. You know, when I think about heaven and the fact that one day Jesus is going to come back and we will all be standing in God's presence, I've been so dreading that day because what I've imagined would happen is that God is going to, you know, unroll this laundry list of sins of which most of which I've tried to forget or most of them I have forgotten, I hope. But I'm so terrified of that that God's just going to go through one by one and be like, hey, remember that time when you did that with that girl? Remember that time when you drank that much? Remember that time when you said that to your wife? You remember when you, and just for 20 years he could be reading these things. I've been so terrified of that. But you know what? The scriptures say that there are no more tears in heaven. And this passage says in verse 8 that whoever believe, believes in him will not be put to shame. Friends, when you, if you get to heaven and if you come through Jesus' blood, he's going to look at you and say, what sin? What sin? There's no more sin. I don't count anything against you as far as the east is from the west. That's how far I've removed it from you. That can be true of you right now. If your forgiveness is in Jesus, if His blood covers you. 
finally, last application is that God accepts our spiritual sacrifices through Jesus Christ. What are spiritual sacrifices? Your worship. When you sit here and sing, that is meaningful. That that comes like smoke, like the smoke that would rise from the altar, symbolically rising to God to please Him. When we sing and our voices rise up, God is pleased and He accepts it because of what Jesus has done for us. But not only that, when we do acts of love and kindness out in this world, when you go to Chicago over spring break and spend a week of your time and $300 of your money serving people, that is a sacrifice, a spiritual sacrifice that God accepts. He is pleased with it because it comes through Jesus. And Peter solidifies his reader's status as going from nobody's to somebody's in verses 9 and 10. He says, look, you are his new people, his new Israel, his new church. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received God's mercy... Now you have received God's mercy. Peter looks at these outsiders and says, Look, you have been brought near to God through Jesus Christ. You are His new people. You are His church. You are His bride. So what, is it, what do we do as these new people? If you're a Christian, you proclaim His goodness. You proclaim the marvelousness of Him as He's brought you into the light. Okay, and I'm going to close with this thought because... Look, if I've lost you to this point, I'm sorry. Um, Come back with me for just a minute. Because most of us functionally don't think about God or Jesus or our religion or our spirituality, whatever, from day to day. Most of us don't think about it a lot from day to day. And I would suggest this is why. It's because our problem is that we have deemed popularity in our acceptance before our friends and other people as more important than our purity and acceptance before God. That if we really believe that the God of the universe is on the other side of that picture, then it would really matter to us. But we don't. And here's the great irony of this. Is that when we put our desire to be accepted by men and for your friends to like you and for other people to like you, when that becomes the most important thing in your life, then it becomes a God to you. But catch this. It is a God that will never be satisfied. That it is a God that demands more and more of you. That whenever you set up mankind or other people's approval as what you want most in this world, they will demand that you give everything for it. If your desire is to look cute and cool, then guess what? You've got to buy cute and cool new clothes every three months. You've got to stay in, and it will be this endless cycle of, oh, I've got to keep looking good. Or if you've deemed that getting into grad school is the most important thing, you've got to keep doing all these things, and therefore your grades will be the most important thing, and they will dominate your life. Or if it's a guy or a girl, whatever it is, you will do anything for that, and it will never stop. And the irony is that there is a God who says, look, I will accept you. And you don't have to do anything more for it. It's already been done for you through Jesus Christ and what He has done. The world demands for you to be a somebody. Demands for you to be a somebody. 
and demands that you present the best you, a together you, a you without faults or blemishes or stains or wrinkles, so that you won't be cast out and be what we most fear, awkward, alone, a nobody. But the gospel is so much different. Jesus takes nobodies and makes them into somebodies through what He has done. And He calls you into a new humanity, a new people, the church. And says, look, this is not a group of together people. And if you've ever been in a church, you know that. It's a bunch of screwed up people. And churches do some terrible things and it's awful because they're made of sinners. Of people who have fallen and are messed up. But Jesus comes and becomes a nobody on the cross so that you might be a somebody. He comes as a great high priest so that we may be priests going to God ourselves. We are under priests. We come under Him. And we have access to God. He was the sacrifice so that we don't have to lose our lives on that altar to come to God. Jesus did that for us. So that one day, He will come back and see His church. His bride, dressed in a white dress, not because we earned it, but because He made us pure. He made us white and clean through His blood. Friends, once we were not a people, but now through Jesus we can become a people. Once God's mercy was not open to us, but now it is. Have you received God's mercy and His pardon and His forgiveness and His love that is offered through Jesus Christ? And if you have, will you reflect on that? Will you live in that? That the God of the universe loves you. He is not mad at you. You are pure in His sight because of what Jesus has done. 